So, welcome. Uh, we are in a series going through the, the book of Nehemiah together. We're in chapter 9, and this is going to require you to get into the Word. So grab your Bible, grab your, your like, phone, pull up the YouVersion app. If you don't have it, type in YouVersion in your app store, and you'll have it in 20 seconds. And uh, go to the NIV version, which is what I preach out of, and, um, and we'll kind of get into it. Um, we're walking through this whole book. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, Pastor John did an awesome, or Pastor Tom did an awesome job last week. I'm kind of picking back up. And um, this book, in case you're new here, is essentially about a man with a burden, blessed by God with a burden. He had a burden for people. Uh, the, the Israelites that were in Jerusalem were being bullied. They were being ransacked. They had lost their dignity. They had lost their, um, their identity as Israelites. And uh, he helped to restore that by doing something really practical. He rebuilt a wall, and uh, this wall was around Jerusalem, and for 141 years, it had laid in ruins, and for 70 years, they had tried and like fits and starts to like put it back together, and, and they'd always failed at it, and so finally, Nehemiah comes in. He's got a burden to do this, and in 52 days, finishes this wall that had been, had been laying in ruins for 141 years. Now, um, now that the wall had been rebuilt, the, the real work begins. A lot of people kind of like go through like Nehemiah, the first part of, of the book of Nehemiah, and they end there. And they're like, yeah, Nehemiah is all about a book about leadership, delegation, how to rebuild things, how to, how to, do, you know, how to do this leadership thing. And that's great. It's full of all of those things. But, but pl- I, I feel like people that stop there and only think it's about a guy that rebuilt a wall and led a whole bunch of people to do it in a really fast time period lose the whole purpose I want to remind you that God did not put a burden on Nehemiah just to rebuild a wall. He put a burden on Nehemiah to restore broken down people. And building up a broken down wall does not restore broken down people. It may help, and it's the first step towards it, but it's not the end goal. And so as we continue, I'm excited about this because we're in, we're in chapter 9. We talked last week about how the revival started to get sparked in God's people. The wall was built. They all gathered together. And for all day, they listened to the word of God being preached, being spoken to all of them in the city. And they start crying. They weep as they hear it. And as, and as you think about it, like why, why in the world are they crying? Why are they weeping when they're just hearing the word of God being read? And yet you know why. It's the same reason why I'm standing on the front row in worship as we're singing and I'm, I'm weeping. It's the same reason why you may come into a, to a church service and walk into a room and find yourself weeping or hearing a message and thinking, did somebody tell the pastor about my life this past week? Because he is speaking right to me. Because when the word of God is proclaimed, the spirit of God is unleashed. And when the Spirit of God is unleashed, it starts to manifest itself in weird ways. And you find yourself weeping and and joy-filled and hope-filled and all of these emotions that start coming out because the Spirit of God is working on the inside of you. And so we continue. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with tears. It doesn't end with just, oh my gosh, holy goosebumps. I feel like he's talking right to me. Or, wow, that was a really great worship service like, like we just had. In chapter 9, we watch a people go, crawl out of a dead religion into revival. 
It's the, this beautiful picture, and this is the end goal of what was in the heart of God. It wasn't to rebuild a wall, it was to rebuild his people. Because a revival of the word of God will exterminate dead religion every time. So what's the difference? What's the difference between dead religion and a dynamic revival? Let me just throw out a few different things so that we, we kind of understand what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about dead religion and revival. Dead religion uh, essentially uh, makes the crowd your audience. Dead religion's all about the perception of people. What, what do people think of me? Do they view me as holy? Am I a good person? It's either, either I'm my own judge and I get to judge whether I'm, I'm holy or not or other people around me tell me this, but, but either way, dead religion makes the audience my God instead of God himself. Dead religion makes you wear a mask that hides you rather than transforms you. It creates a mask that you wear on the outside that looks very pious and humble and all of these things rather than giving you actual power to transform you from the inside out. Dead religion is spirituality without the Holy Spirit. It's essentially kind of acting the part, trying really hard to do better, trying to do enough good things and not do enough bad things to earn our way in. But it is, it is religion, it is spirituality without the Holy Spirit. It's focused on our attempt to get to God rather than just receiving his attempt to get to us. That's the difference between dead religion and dynamic revival. And what they needed in their day Nehemiah's day was not more religion. They didn't need more religious people. The rebuilding of a wall helped, but it wasn't the end. They needed revival. They needed revival. And church, what we need in our day is revival. We need revival. And we can help rebuild walls and prop things up, and those things may help. But at the end of the day, please do not try to convince yourself that we will somehow achieve revival through rebuilding a wall. We do not experience revival through political party allegiance. We don't, revival is not contingent on the next election. It is not contingent on the prosperity of an economy. You may have lower gas prices, hallelujah. It may be a revival of your wallet, but it is not a revival of your heart. Amen? And so these walls may need to be rebuilt. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the end goal. We need revival. And so I did a quick study over the, the past few hundred years, just here in America, of revival. I'm not kidding, I did. Um, there was a revival in America in the 1700s. Do you guys know what it's called? The Great Awakening. Thank you. Yes, you're a revivalist. I love it. Great Awakening. It was the Great Awakening. It started somewhere around 1730. It's kind of hard because we didn't have great reporting back then, right? Um, somewhere around 1730. It lasted for well over a decade. In fact, the remnants of it lasted for far longer than that. It was notably sparked by two people. Um, they were kind of like the at least the, the, the voice pieces, the you know, mouthpieces of this thing, uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. You may have heard of Jonathan Edwards' famous, famous um, sermon, right? Um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Um, Jonathan Edwards began his ministry right here in New England, about two to three hours away, right down the pike in Northampton, Massachusetts. You have a history of revival starting here. 
Over that time, about 50,000 people were added to New England churches during that season. Far more raised their hands and committed to Christ. But as far as measuring, 50,000 people were added to the churches of New England over that time period. It led to building of colleges. Some of them you might have heard of. Uh, a small college named Dartmouth, um, Brown, Rutgers, Princeton. I don't know if these are small. You probably never heard of any of these. All of them started out of this like training ground for Christian leaders. Jonathan Edwards, um, in, in some of his memoirs, wrote down five marks of true revival. And I want to just read them out there to you. Five marks of true revival. Number one, it exalts Jesus Christ. Number two, it attacks the powers of darkness. Number three, it exalts the word of God. Number four, it lifts up sound doctrine. And number five, it promotes love to God and man. I was like, man, so simple and yet so profound. The Great Awakening, 1700s. Again, in the 1800s, we have what we call the Second Great Awakening. We didn't have another name for it, so we just called it the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. In fact, in the late 1850s, I want to read a portion of a news article that a friend sent me a few months ago of how revival broke out right here. This is from the late 1850s. Morning, noon, afternoon, and evening meetings were attended by great crowds in Portland, Maine, where the church bells daily summoned thousands to prayer. An extensive revival broke out in Bangor and in Biddeford. Large accessions were made to the churches of Saco. The movement was distinguished for the remarkable rapidity of the work of conversion, adults and heads of families being the outstanding fruit of the revival. Yeah. Right here. And then in the 1900s, we had the 60s and 70s, the Jesus movement. Some of you actually, like, Maybe you didn't realize it, but we're like saved out of that revival, that movement that started happening in the 60s and 70s. And uh, if you've made, some of you have watched the movie Jesus Revolution, if you haven't, you need to. Um, it began with the hippies, uh, the kind of uh, free love, drug use, barefoot music festivals, Eastern religion hippies, long haired, just kind of. These hippies started getting saved and um, ruining. Everyone else's perfectly good religion. <laughs> apparently, apparently, God wanted to save anyone. <laughs> Even people who are like so far out that like, man, they are a lost cause. Even the hippies, God was like, yeah, I want to save them too. What? Here's my point. Uh, we saw a revival in the 1700s. We saw a revival in the 1800s. We saw a revival in the 1900s. We're due for a revival. <laughs> and revival begins with you. 
How does it take root? Well, let's look at Nehemiah. Let's see what happens in, in Nehemiah's time. They hear the word and they weep. And I will say this, and I mean this in the most amount of love, but I feel like so many of us stop there. We hear the word, we're in worship, it's preached, and we cry. Wasn't that awesome? Great job, pastor. You felt like you were speaking right to me. Wasn't that worship service awesome? We stop there. We stop at crying. But God never told us to just stop at weeping. Keep going. Verse 2. He says, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood in their places and look what they did next. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They respond to the word of God, not just by hearing it, not just by crying, but by confessing sin. They spend, as you can see this if you kind of read down through chapter 9, they spend three hours confessing sin. That's a lot of confessing. Three hours of confessing is a lot of confessing. And what's interesting to me today, and, and this is just kind of more of a, of a read and a take on American Christianity, is this, like, um, in today's world, when, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, there's a lot of talk of, like, well, Lord Jesus, I repent for my sins, and I ask for, for forgiveness of those sins. But the list of sins seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter every year. We don't even like to use the word sin anymore. We've pretty much reserved the word sin for not just murderers. I mean, you've got to be like a serial murderer to be called like, oh, yeah, 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 that would probably be uh, a sin. Or we don't mind calling sins out in what other people are doing, but not necessarily the sins that are easier to hide that we're doing. And what happens is that when you're confronted with the holiness of God, with the word of God, I have so much more to confess than what I thought I did. And we have a few different options. So whenever like the word of God starts to like show you something that, that is sin in your life, it calls, it calls out. And I'm not even saying like when a, when a fiery preacher starts pounding on a plexiglass pulpit, you know, like, and saying like, you're a sinner, you're whatever, like all of these. I'm saying when you get into the word of God and all of a sudden the word of God starts highlighting something in your life because that's what it does. It's like a mirror. It reveals you. Then all of a sudden you're confronted with a choice in that moment. And there's a lot of different options. The first one, you can deny it. You can be like, well, I never did that. That's not me. Like, I'm not a sinner. I'm a mistaker. It's not a big deal. You're making a big deal out of this. And uh, I just make mistakes every once in a while, right? So sue me, right? But I just deny it. I just move on. The second thing we can do is we can celebrate it. Not only do I refuse to feel bad about it, but I'm proud of it. In fact, in, I'll make you feel wrong if you don't condone it. Number three, you can blame other people for it. It's not my fault. They made me do it. My mom put my diapers on too tight. That's why I am the way that I am. <laughs> Sorry. Not my deal, but yours. Or we can excuse it. I'm only human. Sorry if I'm not perfect. Don't judge me. Stop it. Or we can confess it. It seems so easy, and yet it is the hardest to do. Because what confession is, is simply saying, I am choosing to agree with God's word. I, I am wrong, and he is right. Whew. 
You think that's so easy to say? Try doing it. Try, try doing that thing that you know that God's talking to you about and just say, okay, I am choosing to agree with you, God, and not trying to get to twist or to deny or to excuse or blame to get you to agree with me. I'm coming into alignment with the truth of God's word. That's confession. And the road to revival is in the confession of sin. Let me just poke a little bit more. Um, if you're not fully just, you know, offended yet. <sighs> Revival is not a miracle. Stop praying like it is one. I'm sick of the church praying like revival depends on God to do something. He already has. I think God's prayer is that he's waiting on you. He's waiting on us. Revival depends on us. He's already done the work. If my people who are called by, come on. Quit praying like it's a miracle that depends on God to do something. Start walking in it. Verse 3. I'll, I'll get off it. Verse 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their Lord. Catch this. For a quarter of the day. And spent another, another quarter of their day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Notice. This is so interesting. Notice that they spent just as much time confessing their sin as they did reading God's word. What would it look like if we did that? What would it look like if instead of thinking that we just need to keep filling our minds with another Bible study, with another sermon, if we confessed our sin and came into alignment with what we already know? I think that's the beginning of revival. And notice that in verse 2, it says they confessed their sins first and then confessed the sins of their ancestors. I think it's really interesting because often we are very quick to confess the sins of our parents, the sins of the generation that came before us, even our nation's sin. Like, oh my goodness, we look around at the nation, all these people, and look at what they're doing. Can I just remind you? And I mean this in love. You're in no position to confess other people's sin until you've confessed your own. And if I'm honest, we get so weird as Christians, right? We get so obsessed with like, look at what the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Have you seen what these people are? They're sinners. What do you expect? Sinners sin. And so do saints sometimes, right? And we're, we're it's so focused. My goodness, we're just watching the news. Eyes glued. Just, my, have you seen what's going on in the world? And God's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm actually more concerned about what's going on in you and in your heart. You're in no position to confess other people's sins until you've confessed your own. It's kind of a little like what Jesus said about, like, take the 
log out of your own eye before you go. Like, hey, let me help you with a little, little piece of sawdust in there in your brother's eye. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You want to walk in purity? The first step to purity is confession of sin. So they cry, they confess, and then they respond to the Word of God through repenting. Verse 1, on the 24th day of the month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. What's interesting is that the confession of sin is not simply words. It, um, anyone can say words. Anyone can make promises. Anyone can do that. It involved action. And so they fasted, and they dressed in sackcloth, and they, and they, they put dust on their heads. It sounds like a Friday night for you, right? <laughs> Catch this. Here's the point. It sounds weird. I get it. But they were so troubled by their sin that they went without food. I barely can skip a meal. They were so troubled by their sin that they went without normal comforts in life by wearing a burlap bag as clothing. They were so troubled by their sin that they picked up handfuls of dirt and put it on top of their heads. Weird. Okay, a lot weird. Like, that's weird, right? Can we just... Because what if the Christian life should be a little weird? What if it should be? What if, we, what if we took sin so seriously that we weren't just sorry for it, but we actually did something about it? And I'm not talking about, like, you know, dressing up in sackcloth and, you know, and, like, wearing a burlap bag around and be like, oh, I'm repenting or I'm putting dirt on my face. Please, for the love of God, we don't need more of that, right? But, but what about, like, canceling your Netflix if it's a problem for you? What about getting a flip phone if you can't just stay off the Internet and going on sites that you shouldn't be going on? Like, what about, like, moving out of that living situation that you just know you shouldn't be in? What about looking for a new job because you know you need to get out of that? What about giving up that time-sucking hobby that's destroying your marriage? What about tithing in obedience to the the Word of God. Like, what about doing something? In response, church, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. And so many of us not only stop at weeping, and maybe we confess, and then we stop at remorse. I'm so sorry. I got caught. What if repentance made you look weird? I guarantee they looked weird. Nobody wears burlap bags anymore. Nobody puts dust on their heads anymore. What if repentance made you look different, set apart? Because repentance is turning from something to someone. See, true repentance is not just focusing on, like, your own imperfections and, like, oh, I'm so bad at this and I suck at being a Christian and, like, you know, oh, my gosh. Please, can I just remind you, nobody is under any delusion that you're perfect. <laughs> Look to the neighbor next to you and say, you're, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling me. Nobody around you, nobody who really, truly knows you thinks any, by any grandeur of delusion that you are anywhere close to being perfect, and especially if it's one of your spouses. 
You're not fooling anyone. <laughs> Nobody is thinking, oh yeah, so-and-so is perfect. They just have everything going. No, they don't. They don't. True repentance is focusing not on your own imperfections and how bad you are and how sad you stink of life and you can't do this right. Get true, true repentance is focusing on God's perfection, on his word, on his ways. And that is exactly what they do next. Verse 5. And the Levites. I'm going to try this. Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethahahahiah. All the ayahs. The whole family of ayahs. They said... Stand up and praise the Lord God who is from everlasting to everlasting. They respond to the word of God, not just by crying, not just by confessing, not just by repenting and doing something about it. They, they respond to the word of God by praising the Lord. You want to spark revival? Praise the Lord and exalt his name together and it will begin to usher in revival. Amen? And then we get into verses 5 through 37. I don't know if you realize this. Is the longest recorded prayer in the entirety of Scripture. The longest prayer. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to like run through this to get some points out here for you. Verses 5 through 37 is the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. And apparently it was a condensed version of what took three hours to pray. They spent three hours Focusing on and reminding themselves of who their God is. And I broke it down for you in your notes. If you got your notes today, um, you probably, they're written on microfiche because I had so many um, notes here. And you can go to nlc.today, go to sermons and stuff. But what I'm going to do is I broke down this entirety of prayer. And because it, it is packed with so many great truths and attributes of who our God is. Is. And this is what I'd love for you to do. I'm going to go down through it. There's probably, I don't know, even know, like 25 or something like that, attributes that it goes through. As I go down through these, ask the Lord which one he wants to remind you that he is in your life right now. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray for every single person in the sound of my voice, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever right now, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, Lord, that you would remind them, or maybe even for the first time instruct them of the kind of good God that you are in their life. I thank you for that. I pray that, it, that this word would go forth and that it would get on the inside of them, that, they, that you are who you say that you are and that you will do what you say you will do, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you about them. Verse 5. I'm not going to have the scriptures. You can read them through your Bible. I'm just going to um, talk about the, the, the points that, this, that each verse brings out. Verse 5. Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Number one, he is eternal. He is eternal. He, he is from everlasting to everlasting. Our God spans time and space. He is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. Secondly, you, uh, he is the only Lord God. So all the, other, all the other gods that you're running after, all the other idols that you're worshiping, all the other material things that you think are going to bring you satisfaction in your life will only leave you empty. He is the only one God. 
The next one. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Can I remind someone in here today, he is the creator. He made the heavens, the earth, the, the seas, and everything that is in them. He made, he made the, the heavens, and even, it says, the highest heavens, which means all the things that we're finally building telescopes big enough to be able to see were already in the eyes of God, that he already created them. He is the creator. Next one, verse 6. You give life to everything. He is our sustainer. He numbers our days. He gives you the breath in your lungs. He is your sustainer. He is your sustainer. He gives you life. And just as he breathed life in Adam, he breathed life into you. And he, and he gives us the, the opportunity to, to be reborn in him. He is your sustainer. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And you found his heart faithful to you. And this is it. And you made a covenant with him. He is the covenant maker. He makes covenants with men, not because we deserve it, but because he needs to make a way where there seems to be no way. His heart is for you. And religion, dead religion, is our attempt to try to get up to God when we, when, when, when we could hold on to, the, especially this new covenant that we live within, hold on to this new covenant that he has made with us that is mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve and grace is getting what we don't. He is the covenant maker. Verse 8, you've kept your promise because you are righteous. He keeps his word. He does what he says that he will do. And even when you feel like, man, I, I don't know what's going on right now, he is keeping his word. His word is unfailing. He is faithful. Verse 9, he saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard the cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Can I remind someone in here today, he is the miracle worker. If you need a miracle in your life today, he is the miracle worker. He sends signs and wonders. He comes alongside us when we are in our moments of distress and we have nowhere else to cry, but God, we need you to work a miracle in our midst right now. He sends signs and wonders to show how good he is. He is the miracle worker. Verse 10, you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. He has a great name. His name is higher. His name is greater. We just sang about it. Amen? Everything that God does is him making a name for himself. Why? So that we can know him, not just know him, his, his name, but know his ways. So when somebody asks you, do you know God? You don't, it, it's not whether you know his name. It's, it's do you know him? Do you know his word? Do you know his ways? Do you know him? He has a great name. Verse 11. You divided the seas before them, and so they, that they passed through on dry ground. He is the way maker. He makes ways where there seems to be no ways. And so when you're, if you, maybe someone in here needs to hear this, when you are up against an obstacle that seems way too big and there's no way through and there's no way around it, he is the way maker. He makes a way where there seems to be no way. He is the way maker in your life. Amen? Verse 11, you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. He is your protector. He is your defender. He goes behind you, before you, beside you. He cares for you and he sees the, the enemies that are following you. He is your defender. He is your protector. So when you think, well, I got to stick up for myself and I got to make this happen and I got to push this and they ought to pay for this, just know he is your vindicator. Amen? 
Verse 12. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. He leads our way and he lights our path. If you're not sure where to go, get into God's word. Don't just stop at weeping at it. Don't just stop at confessing it. Choose to continue to walk in his way because his ways are not for, your, not for the worst of you. His ways are for the best. His best for you. He leads our way but you've got to follow. That's why Jesus called every single one of his followers. He said, come follow me so that I can lead your way. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. He speaks to his people. If you're like, we do not serve a mute idol. We serve a God who is living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Like we serve a God who speaks to his people. And sometimes that's through words of prophecy like we just heard today. Sometimes words of knowledge and visions and dreams. God wants to speak to his people. And that means you. He speaks to us. Verse 13, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. He is the good law giver. And it is not because he's a cosmic killjoy. It is because he wants what is best for you. And sometimes we we rail against the things that God is actually putting into our life for our own good. Verse 14, you made them, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and your laws through your servant Moses. He commands rest. He commands rest. Some of you need to hear that today. You think, well, the only way I'm going to get out of this is I just keep moving forward. I just keep fighting, just keep doing, just keep, I got to work seven days a week. I got to get this thing done. He commands rest. He made the, the, the holy Sabbath known to us. Verse 15, in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. He is your provider. He's your provider. Listen, someone in here needs to hear this. Your provider is not the person who signs your check. You aren't even your own provider. God has given you the skills, the talent to be able to get the job that you currently have to provide for your family, but you are still not your provider. The Lord is your provider. And we get our eyes off of that. Well, I'll just tell you what, you're in a quick round to burnout, thinking that everything always depends on you. Our God is our provider. He provides food out of nowhere and drink out of a rock. He certainly can do it for you. He is your provider. But even in all this, verse 16, this is what amazes me. God's amazing. I just outlined all of these things. He's, he's eternal. He's a way maker. He's a protector. Even in all this, but verse 16, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. And they became stiff-necked, and their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return them to slavery. But God. Turn to your neighbor and say, but God. But God, verse 17 But you, Lord, are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. The next thing we know, even in the midst of our own failures, of our own weaknesses and our own arrogance, he is merciful. He deals with us mercifully. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He is merciful God. 
Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. Can I tell somebody in here today, he does not leave us. You may feel like you're in the wilderness and you've got nobody and nobody cares and nobody sees what you're going through. Can I just tell you, he does not leave us. He does not abandon you in the wilderness and you may not feel him, you may not see him right now, but he is right beside you the entire way. He does not leave you nor forsake you. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. He sends his spirit to instruct us. Did you know the Holy Spirit isn't just so that you get holy goosebumps? The Holy Spirit is meant to be in your life, to live within you, to instruct you in the ways of God. We get into his word, he bears witness with his word, and he brings things up to transform us to the inside out, not in condemnation, but in conviction to bring change into us. He sends his spirit to instruct you. Verse 23, you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky and you brought them into the land and told their parents to enter and possess. He is the family maker. You're, you're, you're waiting for a kid? You've been, you've been like, man, I just, I just don't know. We've been, we've been trying and this just isn't where. I just want to remind you, you need to begin to start pressing into, he is the family maker. He is the family maker. Lean in, press in to what it is that God has. Verse 24, their children went in and took possession of the land and you subdued them before the Canaanites who, who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands. He subdues our enemies. You think, oh, I need to press them down. I need to subdue. I need to, I need to sue. I need to go after this. I need to vindicate. Like, I just want to remind you that our God doesn't just bring freedom to us. He subdues our enemies. He brings silence to our foes. Yes. <laughs> know that. Somebody in here needs to hear that today. He subdues your enemies. And even in all this, verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you and they turned their backs on your law and they killed your prophets and who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they, they committed awful blasphemies. But God even in the midst of them turning again, yet again, away from you and doing their own thing and even killing people that were telling them the opposite thing of what they wanted to hear. They're like, get rid of these people. I don't even want to hear what they're having to say. But God, verse 27, so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies. How is that a good God? Who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. Can I remind you, church, that he is a good disciplining father. Sometimes he lets us go and make our own decisions and reap our own you know, consequences. But when we cry out to him and say, God, Father, save us, he hears from heaven and in his great compassion, he's, he sends a savior, a way out. Amen? He is a disciplining father. But even in all this, <laughs> verse 28, as soon as they were at rest, God, thank you, you saved us, hallelujah. They again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. But God, turn to your neighbor and say, but God. Verse 28, and when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them. T 
Time after time. You see, there's something that keeps going here, right? Time after time after time. Can I remind you, he is our deliverer. When we are faithless, he is faithful. Verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. He is patient, long-suffering with you. So if you failed him and you failed him a hundred times, I just want you to know there is hope for you. You failed him once, you failed him a hundred, there is hope for you. He is long-suffering, he is patient with you. And when you cry out and say, God, I've done it again, he comes and saves you again. But God, verse 33, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully when we have acted wickedly. Church, he is faithful. He's faithful. It's like what we sang today. Man, these songs were so on point with what I'm talking about here today. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. He is faithful. But God, but God. I turn away. I am stiff-necked. I am arrogant, but God. I act in pride. I act in disobedience, but God. We sin. We fail. We miss the mark, but God. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? So um, we get to the end of chapter 9, and this is... Don't, don't lose me here. Don't, don't, this isn't time to leave. This is the clincher. This is the clincher. This is the clincher. Verse 38. It's the last verse of chapter 9. Let me read it for you. I'm just going to read it. Prayer's over. And this is their response. Verse 38. In view of all of this, all we just read, we are making a binding agreement. We're, gonna, we're putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So, the response to all of this is to write up a contract and have everyone sign it. And the terms of this contract are laid out in the entirety of chapter 10. I'll give you the gist. There's a good verse here in chapter 10, verse 29, that kind of consolidates it into a statement. It says this, All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of our Lord. Please sign here. They essentially make a resolution to try harder and to do better. There's a huge problem with this. And the problem is their track record. I mean, they spent all day recording the longest prayer in the Bible describing their 1,000-year track record of failure 
time and time and time and time again. But somehow, today's going to be different. We're going we're gonna to write this up. You know what? No, we're not even just going to say it. We're going like, to write this up on, a, on papyrus, man. We're going to outline this, and we're going to obey every law, every command, every decree from this point on, and everyone's going to sign this, and this is going to fix everything. If we write it down on paper and we sign it, it's going to be different. This is a horrible ending. It is so sad. That this is their response. After all of this, they're like, this is what we've got to do. They had to have known in their heart of hearts that they were not going, this was not going to work. They had to have known in their heart of hearts that they were making promises that they were bound to break, maybe even the same day as they sign it. Their problem was not a simple oversight that needed correcting. Like, this was a cycle, folks. This cycle needed a miracle. This was a track record. It was not going to be broken by, by signing in blood on some, some contract. And that is exactly why God sent his one and only son. Because there was no way. No contract was going to fix this thing. It was a track record over and over and over and over and over and over again. No, 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 no promise, no, no New Year's resolution. But God. Can I just, church, can I just remind you? It is only in Christ that you receive grace and mercy. It is, it is only in Christ that God flips the script on your life. And maybe you can look at your own life and you're like, man, that, my life looks a whole lot like the track record of the Israelites. And I was kind of thinking that today I was going to write up a contract. Today I was going to sign it. I was maybe going to tell everybody that I was going to sign this thing and I'm going to make all these promises that I wasn't going to do what I didn't want to do and I was going to do what I don't want to do and I'm, I'm going I'm to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make a promise. And, and you can decide to draw up a contract, make a resolution to try harder and to be better, and we both know that you'll fail. Or you can choose to respond to the word of God, to confess your sin and to repent. But before you write up another contract and sign it, what if you surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in you today? Because let me remind you, in Nehemiah's day, they didn't have what you have today. They weren't living in the new covenant that you have today. That God sent his one and only son as a final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. You could rip up the contract. What if you focused on, on praising God and his son, Jesus Christ, that, that he made a way for you to receive mercy and grace in your life. Mercy, the gift of God, not giving you what you do deserve. And grace, the gift of God, giving you what you don't. What if you ripped up that contract and asked God to start a revival? But God, 
Lord, I confess. I've done my own thing. I've walked my own way. I've lived as a prodigal. I desperately need you in my life. My hope is not in me. My hope is not drawing up another contract that I hope that I don't fail. My hope is an anchor for my soul. My hope is in you, Jesus. My hope is in your, your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection that made a way where there was no way for me. There is hope in the power of the cross. And so, Jesus, have your way in my life. I receive it and I surrender to it. And it's not about me being good enough. It's about me just surrendering to what you've already done. Change me, make me, mold me, break me to look more like you. I'm going to walk and confess. Walk in obedience to your word, not just out of sheer grit, but out of you, your power and your spirit living in me. Let's worship together.